now with spring and lockdown restrictions are easing, I'm really looking forward to going for a swim at the beach. True voyage is return. Today, as we walk home, let's return to the senses. I'd like to talk to you about why I love swimming so much. I'd like to thank Helen for checking in on me for the last two weeks and asking, is your podcast out yet? For the last two weekends, I did try to get this podcast started by just starting, following my own advice from the previous podcast. So it's not that difficult to have a podcast, right? You just start. I tried that. However, I made the mistake of overthinking it and typing a whole script before recording. And I'm finding that that's not what podcasts are about. So this weekend, after my morning walk in Tai Chi, I locked myself in the cupboard, well, in the walk-in cupboard, that's where I record this podcast, just pressed record. And I thought, well, I'll just start recording my thoughts and sharing a few things and see how it goes, and we can always edit it later. Helen also asked... Could you please share a bit more about Nyepi? I miss it and I miss Bali, said Helen. I would like to read to you the first article that I got published in the Jakarta Post. It's titled, Ousting Demons to Usher in New Year. It's about Nyepi. The serendipity of publishing this piece in a double-page spread in the Jakarta Post um, is thanks to Made Wijaya, who I refer to as my fairy godfather in Bali, because he had this habit of taking amazing pictures of Balinese ceremonies and just sending them out. This particular time, he also sent it to his editors in the Jakarta Post saying, you got to publish these photos, they're amazing. The editor got back to him and said, Made, we're a newspaper, we need an article to go with the pictures. Yes, we'd love to publish your pictures, but could you write something to go with it? And he said, I'm too busy. Just ask Hade. So I um, was given an overnight deadline, and this is what came out of that. It was published in the Jakarta Post on April 2nd, 2006. And in reading this, I kind of feel how the situation is kind of eerily similar um, to the current post-COVID situation in Bali. It has been unnervingly quiet on the tourism front in Bali of late. Many have been laid off or put on part-time, giving the Balinese more time at home, more time to just be Balinese. Nyepi, a day of silence marking the first day of the Saka calendar, is the only nationally observed Balinese holiday, perhaps for the practical reason of being one of the few that only fall once a year, or the fact that a 30-hour curfew is imposed on the island 
from midnight until dawn the day after. I continue to find out that there is much more to the day, both in its preparation and in its continuation. Many a columnist from Bali to New York has reveled at the concept of Nyepi, remarking on the island's peaceful calm when the Balinese observe Chatur Brata Panyepian, the four abstentions of Nyepi, food, travel, work, and fire. To me, fire refers not just to cooking and illumination, but to technology in general. There is something reassuring about knowing that for one day, I'm encouraged to refrain from turning on my mobile phone and my laptop. Two companions that I invited into my circle as guests for ease and comfort, but have now become my masters, dictating how I spend my time. The life of a techno-freak aside, the continuation of holy days, temple anniversaries and celebrations that define Balinese life run on two calendars. Sasi, a 12-month lunar calendar, that also encompasses Nyepi on the Saka calendar, and the 30-week Pawukon calendar, brought over from Java during the 14th century. These form a complex cycle of numerological conjunctions, providing the basic schedule for ritual activities on Bali, particularly governing the traditional rice-growing cycle as well as determining good days to build houses, have wedding ceremonies, hold death and cremation rites, and other regular activities. Historically, the beginnings of this holiday can be found in India in 78 AD, when King Kaniska, famous for his wisdom and religious tolerance, established a calendar. It was the pilgrim Ajisaka who brought this calendar to Indonesia, where it is now known by his name. Thus, on March 30, 2006, on the first day of the 10th lunar month of Bali's Sasih calendar, the Saka New Year 1928, was celebrated in Bali as Nyepi. Those discussing Balinese religious philosophy often view Nyepi as the most important of the island's religious day. A day of self-introspection, in keeping with this island's cultural tendency to search within for the reasons of the world's ills. While I enjoy my day of silence, the most beautiful day in Bali for me occurs three days prior, during Melis, when villagers gather at their temples in the dark early hours for the honour of carrying effigies of their deities and temple artefacts to the sea or lakes in a dawn procession of white. It is a large family affair, and most of the village makes an effort to turn up in their best. At the sea, the temple artefacts are ritually bathed and prayers and offerings are given to Ratu Baruna. It is a prayer to the sacred purifying powers of water, for all life came from the sea, a confirmation of why Balinese Hinduism is often called the religion of water or Agamatirta. Tawur Kasanga, literally the sacrifice held on the ninth dark moon, is held exactly one day before Nyepi. All villages in Bali hold a large exorcism ceremony at the main village crossroads, the meeting place of demons. In the evening, Ngurupuk is performed after offerings and prayers, and the whole family makes noises and lights up the night with burning torches to wake up the evil spirits or butakala. A carnival parade of demons is held all over Bali following sunset. 
the Ogo-Ogo representations of monsters or evil spirits symbolizing our inner and outer demons were particularly fantastical this year. Luck found me high in the mountains by Lake Bratan, 75 kilometers from home at this hour, and my one-hour journey to Sanur dissolved into three and a half as I observed at each main village thoroughfare and crossroads the riotous Bulaganjur Gamelan accompanying the dance of giants taken from classical Balinese lore. But we Balinese don't limit our imagination to the past. Our pantheon of evils now include mutated versions of Spider-Man, blonde bimbos riding Harley-Davidsons, and doped-up punk-rock smoker-drinkers bearing bottles of bintang. All have fangs, bulging eyes, and spiky hair, as is the rage, and are illuminated by bamboo torches and bonfires. It is a new year meets Halloween and Guy Fawkes all in one for the island's youth. Children as young as ten are out in force, proudly prancing their own mini-monster creations. Just like in the West, New Year's Eve is celebrated with a melee of noise. However, the Balinese open the day with silence and contemplation. The prohibitions against working and leaving the house are taken seriously. Hotels are exempt from Nipi's rigorous practices, but their guests must stay inside. Every street is quiet except for the occasional checks by the pachalang or traditional wardens. As darkness falls, the birds' evening chorus seems louder than ever. Street dogs howl. Lights are turned off or blacked out from exterior view. The whole day is a simple, long, quiet day in the calendar of this otherwise hectic island. On this day, the world is given a chance to purify itself and begin anew. On Ngambakgeni, the day after Nyapi, families visit each other to catch up, forgive and forget past wrongs. It is also a day for Dharmasanti, reading ancient moral stories in poem and song. There is gladness and fresh air for new beginnings. No matter what the world may bring, Bali awakes on the dawn of each new year with revived energy, its demons put to rest. For the past four weeks, I've been doing a course online at Acuban Academy. I've been really lucky to have formed a great team with three folks in New South Wales called Timbunji, which means mate in Aboriginal. At the end of our session, where we discuss the various aspects of the course and the questions raised by the course, we're usually encouraged to do a reflection and this is one of my recent reflections after a team meeting. One of the aha moments in our group was realizing that practicing moral imagination, particularly deeper listening and reflective open inquiry, i.e. not reacting to a person's story, but reflecting it and making sure to check in that what we understand is correct or what they really mean, can actually already begin to shift the story. Even if our efforts were still in the realm of trying to see the worldview of another person for what it is, 
For example, when we truly listen and try to understand a person's point of view and thoughtfully reflect, this is what I hear you say. The energy our attention and engagement gives to that person may spark a realization and they may tell us to stop telling us what they think because obviously they know better and say, that's what I said, but that's not what I mean. This is what I really want to say. To truly listen, we must suspend judgment and accept. Recently, I saw a meme about how children cannot comprehend that another point of view could be wrong until they reach six or seven years of age, which leads to the theory that the tendency of I'm right, so you must be wrong, is a learned behavior that we can unlearn. We don't get meaningful progress by invalidating a person or negating their worldview. Meaningful progress can begin when we validate a person to be brave enough to stretch to also include the points of view of others. You may be surprised how relieving it can be to talk about the difficult things for both you and the person you may have been waiting for a long time to have such conversations. The initial hesitation you may need to overcome, though, is the disbelief when you start talking and asking and listening when someone really important to you in disbelief asks you, are you really that interested in my life? So many of us sleepwalk through our days believing that our lives are uninteresting and that we need to be inspired by others. But there are inspirational stories of overcoming limitations and building resilience all around us. The ability for deeper listening becomes a gift, almost a kind of magic or alchemy that transmutes the ordinary into something worth being and becoming. One of the things I really miss during lockdown is swimming in the sea. I really enjoy going to clothing optional beaches. When I lived in Waiheke, I enjoyed going to Little Palm Beach, at least three generations, if not four, of families that go there who are totally comfortable with themselves and very friendly. It's almost as if Shedding clothes can also be shedding of pretense. In Bali, people bathe in rivers and springs. I thought I'd share with you an article I wrote about the dying art of nude bathing in Bali. This is a piece called Beyond the Eyes of the Beholder, which was published in The Bud, a magazine for the people of Ubud. Prudish social attitudes may be making headway in Indonesia, but Bali remains home to the art of unselfconscious nude bathing in rivers. Let me qualify that. This is not some 1920s drive to entice voyeurs to come boob-watching in Bali. The days of Gregor Krauss are long gone. Those inclined to shoot 4,000 slides of bare chests while on holiday should head for Miami or Brazil. Nyukuning, one of my favorite villages in Ubud, is just south of the Monkey Forest. There, I have the use of a friend's riverside cottage 
where I am lulled to sleep and wake to the sound of trickling water from the ravine-side springs that continuously feed the gurgling river below. All along this river are bathing areas. Men, women and children come to soak, splash or swim in the river, wash clothes and have a final rinse under spring-fed fountains. I found a 20-metre stretch of deep water where I can do laps in water pilates before floating downriver. Weightless in the current's cool silky threads, I would glimpse fleeting patches of blue sky through a canopy of palm fronds. Walking down the stone steps carved into the cliff of my favourite spot, one day I came across a father and daughter by the river. The father is modestly wearing his underwear while he scrubs the family laundry on a boulder. The daughter, who I guess is about four, is in her birthday suit. She is trying to catch a dragonfly, completely oblivious to me passing. Further upriver, three teenage boys are noisily diving in and out of the water. Communal bathing remains a fact of life for those who cannot afford the luxury of privacy. In crowded bathing areas, the art of nude bathing lies in the languid lifting and rolling of a sarong onto a bundle on the top of one's head as the body melts into the water. The modest manage to place their threads on dry ground without bearing too much skin above water. While the self-conscious go for the clinging wet sarong look, the fine art lies in accepting exposed skin as a normal part of life. Men and women usually bathe in plain sight of each other, with only a small courtesy of distance separating them. Perhaps nude bathing is an earthly subject unworthy of intellectual discussion, but the attitudes towards it are a fascinating source of debate. Locking verbal swords with fundamentalist groups demanding laws to govern decency, freedom of expression lobbyists in Indonesia point out that porn producers and those supporting a strict dress code that bans women from bearing arms, navel and legs have a lot in common. They depart from the same point of view that women's bodies are merely objects of sexual attention. Just as the body has more functions other than sex and procreation, so does the body have more senses other than sight. The hegemony of sight over the other senses, however, has dulled sensuality. As Derrida pointed out, there is a sacred and ancient friendship between light and power. A dominating focus on world view leads us to treat the world around us as projections that we observe without entering to touch and explore with our skin. Bathing in the open splendor of nature is much more than a ritual cleansing for the body. It revives our tactile and oral senses, as well as the innocence of judgment-clouded vision. Trusting the universe in our nakedness, we re-establish our connection and feel at home once again inside the womb of creation. Most visitors who come here are spellbound by the view. They sit on the comfortable reclining chairs of the open pavilion and are content to watch the river go by. Hardly anyone dips a toe in it. We all breathe the same air, but water for ablutions is perhaps too intimate to share. Fresh, the little girl walks up the steps. Her father follows, bag of laundry on his back. She's still a little goddess 
who has yet to learn about harsh reprimands. She has yet to learn to scrutinize her image in mirrors and learn to feel the eyes of the world upon her. How much longer, I wonder, will she be free from modesty?